Welcome to the Rally Podcast. I'm Josh Vaughn. And I'm Marissa Raglan. We are the co-founders of Rally, where we are all about cultivating community through creativity. In this podcast series, we explore creative communities and the communal landscapes they foster. Welcome to my studio. And thank you for having us in your studio. This is great to be in Studio 6. And as you can hear, we're doing a podcast in a thunderstorm, so there's nothing more Oklahoma than that. And we are located in the heart of the Paseo Arts District. So, yeah, we're very excited to be here. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down with state senator and longtime champion of the arts in Oklahoma, Senator Julia Kurt. She is an experienced community leader who has led statewide nonprofit organizations for almost 20 years. In the past, she has served as the executive director of Oklahomans for the Arts and as the executive director of Oklahoma Visual Arts Coalition for over 15 years. In 2014, she received the Governor's Arts Award. Also, she is an advisory board member for the All Access Arts Program and was elected a council member by our national peers for the Americans for the Arts State Art Action Network. That's a mouthful, but this doesn't paint a complete picture of, of how she has supported and affected the arts in Oklahoma on an individual level even. We have so much to talk about, so let's get started. So, Julia, thank you so much for being on this podcast. You truly have made a lasting impact on my career, and I was wondering if you remember where we first met. Oh my gosh, you were you were an intern. That's right. I didn't meet you before that, did I? Nope. Yeah, she was a sweet, very enthusiastic intern who took every challenge on with with gumption. I remember we gave you some curveballs. Yes. Yeah. So interning at OVAC summer and it was just so impactful for just setting the foundation for career. So I love that. That's great. Yeah. I just from seeing you as a mother come to OVAC and return with Lila, right? I had Roger first. Yeah. But I think, but yeah, Lila, you would have been around when Lila was. Yeah. I just remember you returning and you brought her to the office. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, like, wow, this woman, she (laughs) is here to get stuff done. And now as a mom myself, I just really admire just the gumption and the just the scheduling and the challenges of, of just being a mom and also kicking ass. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. I'm, both my kids came. Roger came with me for almost a year part time. Oh and then gosh. Lila way shorter. Like I like went home crying every night and my husband was like, we need to get daycare. And I was That's like, awesome. okay. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Uh, yeah. I, in my research, I saw you got mom of the month in February, 2019 for Oklahoma city but your husband had nominated you, I think. Oh, that's right. That and, was sweet. Yeah. And he wrote the sweetest little blurb about you and about how you rebuilt the art program in your daughter's school or oh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So my kids, I mean, this is part of my story on how I ended up running for office because my kids go to my neighborhood school. It's Oklahoma City Public School. Um, love our school. And I kind of was introduced to the school at, at a time of budget cut. So like maybe my son's kindergarten or first grade year, they started cutting things. We were having a budget crisis at the state level. And I I went to a meeting with the superintendent where we were complaining and advocating that they were cutting programs and they were cutting teachers. And then they cut the art program a couple of years later. And I, I just couldn't have that for my kids. I knew that we needed it. And it was kind of cool because I was able to get matching funds and a visiting artist from the Oklahoma Arts Council, I mean, the Arts Council, Oklahoma City, roster to come and serve part-time and then she ended up becoming a certified art teacher later which was awesome but the coolest thing for me was not only did I get that for my kids and I'm not saying by myself we had a team of people working but because we found out how many schools did not have music and visual arts in Oklahoma City's public schools so there were 40 plus elementary schools 
shocked to find out how many of them had no arts programming. We made a partnership, arts partnership for OKCPS with Arts Council Oklahoma City and a bunch of other partners at the table to make sure that every elementary school in OKCPS had access and service. And it stayed to this day. And I think it's one of the reasons why the arts were such an emphasis when they looked at closing schools, when they looked at opportunities, was that we'd already kind of established that we were making sure every kid got access to the arts. Well, I imagine those schools, probably the kids were doing better too. So they were probably excelling because the arts attribute to just expanding your brain. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. You have been a frontline advocate for the arts for a while now. How have you seen the creative culture and communal landscape develop over the years? And where do you see it today? Oh man, it is. It's so wonderful. Like I had never lived in a place as long as I've now lived in Oklahoma City because my dad was in the Air Force when I was young and we moved a couple of times. And so like getting to see the development over time is so wonderful and exciting. And when I first started, I'm thinking specifically about when I started Oklahoma Visual Arts Coalition, because that's when I really started to look broader. Like before that, I worked at the Art Museum, which was amazing. We were out on the fairgrounds. It was a real interesting place to be. But when I started OVEC is when I started to learn about artists and who was out there. And Really, we had the young creatives were missing as far as I can say, you know, like there were a few musicians, but it was really like people were either leaving the state or they were not making work and they weren't out connecting with arts groups. They weren't putting on their own shows. They weren't there was none of that DIY stuff happening. And so when I started at OVAC, one of the goals was that I would work on engaging young artists. And I was 24 when I was hired as director and I had no experience, but they just thought that I seemed like I was willing to go for it. So I brought together all these creatives and just said, what do you want? What do you want in your city? And it was like artists, musicians, lots of restaurant people and hair people, you know, like those creative young people that are out and around. And they came up with momentum. And I just saw the other day, I just saw earlier today that it's the 21st anniversary of momentum, which is like the weirdest feeling. Like I have (laughs) goosebumps right now because the people that connected even then Like the beautiful thing is you bring people together. They had this voice. We had this amazing building that we got to do it in. We had it at Stage Center back when that was around. Really creative, funky building. Like tons of young people had never been there. And we're just like, what is this place, you know? And we got young people to perform and and organize it. And I think the volunteers were one of the most important parts of it because they connected with each other. Then it connected with artists. And so many of those folks have gone on to be leaders and, you know, ongoing contributors to the arts. So I think it was just like, how do you start to make things that help people connect early and love their community and make it what they want it to be? I think we were at a time when the big institutions dominated a lot then. It was, you know, the big, the Philharmonic type entities, which I love and I think are valuable, but like, we need other voices. We need other platforms, right? And so that change has been night and day. Yeah. And then the other biggest change I've seen is, is public art. I mean, mm-hmm. public art was totally misunderstood and not invested in when, when I was started in the arts. And in fact, I was on a committee probably maybe seven or eight years into being at OVAC where we, the city of Oklahoma City was trying to define art, public art, because <laughs> they still categorized it as a sign. If you wanted to get a permit for public art, you had to go through like sign ordinance stuff. And it was like, we didn't even acknowledge it existed, much (laughs) less think it was important and put money into it. So night and day, we went from that to now we have all these different entities doing, using public city money, public state money to, to invest in the arts. And we have private entities making amazing murals happen, making temporary public art happen. I mean, that is just such a vibrant part of Mm -hmm. our community now. And, and even legislation that's pointing money towards the arts more than 
than in the past. So yeah, I mean, that public art program at the state level got established and then got kind of kicked around for a while, but has now now projects are starting to come out of it. And I think that's the kind of investment that we won't appreciate as much for, it's going to take a decade or 20 years before we're like, this is part of what makes us special is to have these unique things that have been made locally or from people from out of state, but they're looking at what our local stories are and our local voices. I think night and day difference with that. So I love it. I love it. And we're actually both kind of a product of, of OVAC. So the artist sync program. So that's that's where we met Mm -hmm. and, um, in our breakout session, Mm -hmm. we called ourselves the intentionalists and we've been meeting monthly ever since. So how many years are we? 2015. That's awesome. It's it's me and Marissa and Gail Curry. Uh-huh. You probably know her. Brendan Williams, you may or may uh-huh. not know him. Sure. And then Heather Clark Hilliard was our instructor or like our advisor. And her first meeting that we met after the after the group, she said, I want you all to know I'm not your advisor anymore. I'm a member of the group. Yeah. So it was, I and, love that. Yeah. And, and we we'll, we'll meet tomorrow. Actually, That's incredible. Yeah. You still get together. Yeah. yeah. I love once that. Yeah, well, that was the other big thing. Like when I started OVAC, they, they had been doing a once a year business of art gathering. And when I arrived, the board had gone through, it was artist led organization. So they went through a big thing where, what do we really want? And they wanted a lot more frequent and more connections with other artists. They didn't want to do a once a year conference. And so they started doing artist survival kit and Artist Inc. just kind of came out of that um, mm-hmm. as like, what are some ways that we can really ramp it up? And my experience over time was first, we were trying to get our, our act together locally, but then we started being like, well, how can we be a platform for some of the artists who want to be able to show regionally? How can we do that and start trying to make those regional connections? You know, Oklahoma doesn't always get embraced right. as part of a region. So we just had to like keep knocking on their door, like be our friend, like let's, let's work together, you know, knocking on everybody's region's door saying, please let us be a part. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend in Kansas city that I met through a national organization. And, and I said, you know, we keep trying to get, I can't remember what it was, Dallas. We keep trying to get the Dallas artist or whatever. And she just said, work with the people that want to work with you. And so then we started making partnerships with Kansas city and yeah. Wichita and some of the other regional hubs where there were artists who were hungry to be in- connected broader than just their local community. Mm-hmm. And that was really satisfying, you know? Yep. Yeah. I know the artists think is still going strong in Kansas city and you're able to see the, that's almost like the second generation of benefits coming. It's layer upon layer of Kansas city's now as they're known as an arts community. It's and great. It's great. Well, it's they great make place. things happen because you yep. once you connect with other artists, you think about what you might want in a community and connect each other to it. And one thing I love about Artists Inc., which OVAC never, I don't think they're fully there. Um, you know, they were defined as a visual arts organization. So really focused on, you know, sculptors to filmmakers. And when we looked at Artists Inc., it's very important to be interdisciplinary. You know, it's got musicians involved and performing artists and And that wasn't, people were worried about us losing our mission, but you know, artistic disciplines are harder and harder to separate and categorize. So, I mean, I felt like that's one of our challenges as a community in Oklahoma is that we're not so integrated with music and dance and performing arts. And I think it would benefit everybody. We're siloed. We're kind of, Mm -hmm. we have these silos and you may have bleed over from individuals, but the communities don't see themselves as part of each other. And right. that's, that's Definitely. whenever you start having that, that overlaying that it starts lapping over into just it's one, it's one big creative community. That's when the great collaborations happen. And that's something we're, we're passionate about. We want to try to try to do in the future. But mm-hmm. one thing I love about Artists Inc. was it gave me language that I hadn't known in terms of how to understand artists motivations, intentions, and like some of the language they would use. For instance, I had noticed this difference, but I hadn't 
had words for it, they would talk about how much commercialization an artist wants. Like, where are they on the commercialization spectrum? So being like, how much do they want to deal with money or not? Like, and how much do they want to, you know, modify their work in order to make money? And I had experienced that for years. Like there's some artists I know who just, they don't want money anywhere near their art. You know, they don't want, Mm -hmm. and then there's other artists where that's just not an issue. They're making art to make money. Mm -hmm. And that's, that that spectrum is okay. And like encouraging people to embrace what they care about and how they want to work and not feel like I oftentimes at OVAC would have people call and they wanted to sell their art. And I think that usually was them thinking validation, Mm -hmm. but really what they wanted and needed was someone to say like, I'm glad you're making art. This is a good thing that you're making art. You know, I see you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and lots of people gave up their work, you know, like they in high school or when they were thinking about college, they got dissuaded from majoring in art. And then Mm -hmm. they later like, wait a minute, like I put that part of me away and I want to connect with it again, you know? Yeah. I work with many people who have art degrees. They're doing great at what they do, but they're not doing that. And so anytime I ask them, they're like, oh, well, that was back then. I was like, well, it doesn't have to be, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can change it to something else. Yeah. You can. Yeah. Or you can always tap back into that. Do you consider yourself a creative? I would say creative. Yeah. I'm not an artist. I'm definitely not an artist. I've always been kind of like the stage manager. I was like the set dresser, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and then when I got to OVAC, I really found a niche because I love creativity and I embrace it, but I don't want to make my own work. You know, Mm -hmm. I have zero desire to make art. I didn't want to be a curator. I tried being a curator. Curators are really artists. You know, they really have an artistic vision and that didn't fit with me. I'm much more about interested in helping people have their best voice, their best, you know, Mm -hmm. uplifting people to and make sure that you have the right people in the room. Yeah, totally. Well, in bridging worlds, like I love bridging you know, the business and art or the, you know, who are the connections that need to be made between worlds for everybody's benefit, you know? Mm-hmm. So what is your origin story? At what inflection point does past Julia say, hey, I want to be an advocate for others. I want to dedicate my life to making a difference and I want to empower others in the arts and beyond. I'm just curious, did it take place when working on the set of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4? <laughs> you know, I didn't know. So, um, you know, working on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4 was life changing. Uh, I spent the summer. This was in Austin. And that's like, why I voted for you. That's, I'm so glad. Yeah. And when it is something I try to throw in when I can, right. I try to tell my um, fellow legislators that I'm probably the only person with an IMDb account yeah, there or you go. profile. I need some cred <laughs> for that. Right. That was really life changing for me. I thought I was going to go into film. So when I went back to college after that summer working on the set you know, horror, crazy horror movie set in the middle of the night and thought that I, that's what I wanted to do. But then when I did more film internships and worked on projects, I really didn't feel like that was my world. And later now looking back, I can say, well, really what I loved was creative collaboration. I love teamwork. I love being on a project where you're all working together for something really interesting. And so that's why the art museum was a wonderful avenue for me into the, into the arts. My first kind of arts gig other than the film was interning at maybe Gare Museum in Shawnee, which is just a wonderful, wonderful little museum. If you haven't been there, go. And I got to do everything. Like they had me do everything from sweep the floors to write about Renaissance art to like hang art, you know. That's awesome. And I just fell in love with like doing community projects where people get to come enjoy what you're doing. And then working at the art museum was like that. I laughed because I was like, every quarter we have a party where everyone tells us what a great job we've done <laughs> making something fun for them to come experience. You yeah, know? that you had fun making too. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a great, great experience. So that led me into the arts. But I mean, OVAC was interesting because I really just grew up with OVAC because I didn't know what I was doing when I started. But I just wanted to 
make things look for gaps. And mm -hmm. I, over time, what I That's figured good. out was that I like to help individual artists and that meant a lot to me, but I could not stay in that helping one person at a time. Like I was about making systems better. And so it took me a while to kind of understand that, um, that I didn't want to do things once. I didn't want to just help one artist. I wanted to take whatever I learned from you and figure out how that can help all the artists or what are the systems. And so like over time I kept backing up to be like, okay, what is it about our state that is not welcoming to creatives? What about our state does not help people find the, you know, whatever their creative passions are or what's bad about for self-employed people? Why is it hard to be self-employed in Oklahoma? And so I got, that's how I ended up kind of into advocacy was that from the very individualized creative pursuit to how does that fit into our state, you know? Mm -hmm. And OVAC, the one cool thing, since they're so statewide, I spent time out in every little town all over the state talking to artists. And I mean, there's so many great people in every community making art. And like some of them are really public about it. Some aren't. Some are really big community leaders. Some aren't. But I just love that that made me fall in love in Oklahoma in a way that I never knew I would. Yeah. And we've seen that. We saw that happen with our friend, Larry. He's from Woodward and he was in our OVAC class. He was driving down from Woodward and let's go to the main state at his brother's house and drive back to Woodward. Well, he went back and he's been trying to start and has started an artist collective up there and they've That's bought, awesome. he has a building and That's he's, awesome. he's doing That's stuff, awesome. you know, up mm -hmm. in Woodward. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take many people being excited and motivated to ch really change a community. I, I had some buddies out in near Arnett and Gage, which is way out. It's small towns outside of Woodward and they have an art gathering. They do regularly cool. and it's happened for years and they had me come out and speak and it just, people were just so alive. Like, yeah. I don't care if they do something 10 years from now, like they were just so into what they were doing and it was wonderful to see them and they helped each other and supported each other. And, oh man. It's good times, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. We took it back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I am curious. Um, middle school, high school, you know, was little Julia in the arts? No, so little Julia had no idea. what. Like, I was one of those kids who didn't really know what I was good at. You know, like, I was kind of generally, I tested okay. I did okay in school. I never did homework, like, but, and did a little soccer, but I was never excellent, you know, and I was a maker, like I did a lot of making of things and I love to do production work like beads and whatever, but I, you know, I didn't really, let's say I played in orchestra, but otherwise just consumer more mm -hmm. than anything. But I was someone who didn't have a sense of what I was really good at. I don't, I try to talk to kids about this because I think there's some kids who just come out knowing what they should do yeah. or have some kind of purpose or they're yeah. like, have that personality. And my personality was like, it's an exploratory personality. And I didn't know what I was good at. The things that I was good at are not tested, like organizing people or like hearing what somebody really wants to do and helping them do that. You know, mm -hmm. like that's not a skill that you get tested on in school. So I always mm -hmm. kind of thought I was just above average, you know, in things. Mm -hmm. And it took till a lot later to figure out what I was good at. But the big turning point for me, I did theater, like tech theater, and that was a blast, like organizing people around building sets and mm -hmm. stuff. But then I helped with the, our newspaper was like really high quality in high school. And I went from writing the first year to being the editor the next year. And it wasn't because I was the best writer. I wasn't the best at anything, but I was good at helping everyone do their That's best. Cool. And so looking back, I'm like, that was a turning point because that teacher immediately knew that I could help everyone else do well. even in. Yeah. And that also gave me that confidence to know like, oh, wait, I am capable in this, you know, something that I yeah, can do. Yeah, definitely. What drives you so strongly to advocate for the arts and why are the arts important? 
So it's interesting now, I'm in this world now, so I got elected in 2018, and it's almost like I left my hometown, which was the mm-hmm. arts, and now I'm in this big world that's kind of, I can't, I don't know if I can articulate as well as I used to. I mean, what I've always seen is the the creativity, the uniqueness, the collaboration of artists has always motivated me. And I love seeing when people make something they're proud of or excited about. I love what it does for communities, how the pride I saw in people about their artists or about their own work. And those really got me motivated. I also think like our society, our global community, there's so much commonality now. We have brands that are global brands. We have restaurants that are global. Like where, where do we find that voice that is not just part of the mainstream of the world, you know? And I, I, I find that an artist, you know, who's making here, who's had an experience here in this community with this weather, and mm-hmm. no, that hasn't happened anywhere else. And right. no, no one, no other state has our history as a state. I love when artists explore the history of a place. So I think I got motivated mostly about uniqueness and potential and that excitement. I think also I, human services are really heavy for me. Um, I, you know, I'm in it now in terms of funding it and understanding the cr- challenges. But I think when I looked at, I knew I wanted to work in community but I, I didn't want to go be in social services and be a social worker. I think maybe my heart gets broken too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and the arts, it, it's personal and it's passion, but it's never, it's not like somebody going into foster care. And I've helped my husband with health stuff sometimes. And like, I can't, when people are having health crisis, I am not good in an emergency. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I frankly think I, I fell in love with the arts because to me, it's a platform where we can meet that's not based in those kind of like immediate human needs. And that's got some wonderful parts to it to me. And then I studied art history because I kind of thought, well, what else do I want to know? What else do I want to understand? So I got my art history master's after I started working in the arts. And I really wanted to look deeply at how artists and arts interact with their, with their moment, with their time. And so I got really interested in, you know, how do people, how does the history and the moment of the time affect the, what they make? and how it's viewed and how it's marketed and what the materials are. Right. And I even think now with COVID, what are the ripple effects of what people are making or, you know. It's hard to even imagine, right? Mm -hmm. But it's something to, at least in a challenging time, look forward to. Yeah, that's true. It'll help us process things. That's for Mm -hmm. sure. I wrote my thesis. This may be way down a rabbit trail, but I wrote my thesis about artist named Jesus Soto, who's Venezuelan. And I got interested in him because I, when I worked at the art museum, there was a piece there that I really hated by him. That's this like wire, <laughs> kind of like a wire jumble. It almost looks like a wire scribble. Why I hate Jesus Soto. <laughs> I just, that's where I started, right? Yeah. But then I saw, I, I experienced one of his um, interactive sculptures at an, a museum and it was so wonderful and that's such cool. a blast. You walk through it. It's got these big, um, like yellow almost hoses that hang down and you feel it and it's kind of minimalist but it's I mean it was just this beautiful experience and people are having a blast in it and I was like how is this the same artist right like mm-hmm. this what I viewed as kind of a navel gazing abstract piece and then this experience that people are having and so I ended up writing about that like I researched his whole trajectory and like he is an artist he moved from Venezuela to France cuz that's what you did you moved to Paris to be a big time artist oh, right yeah. right left Venezuela behind wanted to go he was all about his legend and I'm going to go leave my legacy right and he went and he made a bunch of you know stuff that was kind of critically successful 
But then he started making this work that affected community and he started experimenting and made these amazing things in public spaces. And then he started making his work in Venezuela and all his work that he owned ended up going back to his hometown and made this amazing institution there. So like he shifted from this kind of like super my I'm going to go get recognized in Paris to like making these amazing works that kids love, you know, and I just love public art now and enriching everyone else, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's a shift yeah. of, you know. Yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to see what, and you may have found that out if he had something happen or was just a slow change or. Yeah, I could never just, find the personal story. He started hanging out with some really experimental artists. I think mm-hmm. that was part of it, but I don't know why he became community minded. Mm-hmm. He may have found a community mm-hmm. and figured out that there's more than just him. Mm-hmm. That that usually makes a difference. When you're executive director of, of Oklahomans for the Arts, I heard you speak on public funding for the arts and how important it was. Can you share with us just a little bit about why it is so important to you? Yeah, you know, and and seeing the whole picture of the budget now, I still feel this way, is that the funding that goes into the arts and at the state level, that's Oklahoma Arts Council, and then some communities have local entities that get, get funding, that invests in that local creative culture and those local stories. I, I think... It is showing that it matters that we have artists here and that we have performing arts and visual arts here. It's about encouraging things that can't necessarily be paid for full price by everybody, that we want our communities to have some experiences, even if they can't pay for the whole cost of them, and that artists should get paid for their work. It's important to me that creatives get some remuneration if they need to, you know, Um, and that's not always been a a tradition. And you, you need public money to match with private funds for that. A lot of art forms are not commercially lucrative, but that doesn't mean they don't have value to our community and to our state. And, you know, I watch what the tribes have done. It's just been amazing. You know, tribes trying to come from just economic desolation. I mean, pre-gaming, they they were so difficult. They had no political power. They had no economic independence. And then they got gaming. And what they spent their money on is education and the arts and culture and making sure that their artists are well supported. And I think watching that has been really formative to me because it's about if we want to have a community and we want to have be have empowered people, we need to invest some of our money in, yeah. in our artists. Sure. Um, I love that. Yeah, that's great. That's perfect. Yeah, great question. Uh, can I add that there's there's also an economic return and, you know, that's been quantified and Oklahoma's for Arts has a great economic impact study that is mm-hmm. very conservatively done. Now that I've seen a lot of economic impact studies, I can say like we did not claim things that we didn't do, um, but it attracts visitors and it retains money in communities in ways that was surprising to me. Even things like Paseo Arts Walk, where people aren't paying to get in, mm-hmm. they spend money when they go right. out and it gives people things to do here. So they're not going to another community. And that makes a difference for communities. Mm-hmm. And I think especially for like the Paseo, you'll have people that only come down here for like a date night they are exposed to all this other stuff why they're here that makes them spend more money they'll have that in the back of their head oh i want to get it i want to get that coffee mug or that sculpture that i saw at paseo pottery or whatever down here at the plunge and well people hang out longer too they do they do last first friday quinn and i just walked down for a change of scenery and we were going to grab a quick bite at picasso's and there was a gal playing the harp and quinn was mesmerized oh just what is happening he wanted to hit it no it's not (laughs) you don't get to play <laughs> so in 10 or 20 years, where would you like to see the arts in our state? What can we do to push it forward and what changes need to happen? Well, I think some of the changes are 
underway, but they probably, uh, you know, who knows with COVID what that's affected, but I think there's, there's some momentum for it. One we already talked about, which is interdisciplinary connections between mm-hmm. artists. I think, you know, even at the Capitol, I see efforts to promote film or promote music and they, they need to be integrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need mm-hmm. to be connecting with each other. They might be really different in how they're marketed and how they're sold, but like this state, it matters that they, that artists are connected to each other. So I think more connection and partnership there is, is needed. You know, the other thing I think is socially engaged artwork. I mean, it's, some of this has happened already, but you know, the amazing things, for instance, is it poetic justice that does poetry workshops in the prisons amazing mm. program. And I think about all the ways that artists can benefit by being interconnected in more communities. It doesn't have to be in a, you know, criminal justice system. It can be in the educational system. It can be in community, but those ways that we can find interconnections between our artists and our, and our communities in more ways. Uh, I think that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a change I'd want to see, but I'd say just overall, just having a stronger voice on an ongoing basis. So like feeling like, I mean, I know, I know I can't help myself cause I'm at the state Capitol, but like I want artists more involved with elected leadership, either right. in office or speaking up more. Mm-hmm. Like I don't see very many artists engaged with who is running our state, who's running our cities. And I'm, I know they have plenty going on, but we need more artists engaged with that realm, I think. Mm-hmm. I heard you speak about, it was the Creative Mornings where you spoke about over an 18 month period, you knocked on 20,000 doors, 22 plus 20, 20. Where do you learn about people in Oklahoma City in your district? And what, you know, what surprised you? What was, it was, I mean, it was an amazing experience. So I announced pretty early, um, for office and I was kind of informed by people who know what they're doing, that if you're Number one, I was trying to flip a seat and I was new to politics and it was an open seat. I was told you need to knock a bunch of doors. And and I, at that time I was like, knock doors. What do you mean? <laughs> it's their shorthand for go out and meet people at mm-hmm. their homes. You need to go visit them. Right. And I always had kind of thought that was some kind of hazing exercise that was just, you know, <laughs> that they just said you had to do that. But what I found out, I mean, it's just the most amazing experience. It's awkward. It's hard. It's time consuming. I mean, it is awkward to go interrupt people's day. And knock on their doors. I know I, when anyone knocks my door, I am interrupted from something, right? But it's an amazing experience. So like going and trying to gain people's trust, that's essentially what you're doing. It's like going out and trying to be like, but you can't say, hey, trust me, I'm a good person because that doesn't work, <laughs> right? So how do you build trust with people? Um, it was really um, looking back. I mean, it just I had so many amazing experiences of getting to connect with people. I had not been out of my bubble very much. I'd been working in arts, the arts and nonprofit realm for about 20 years almost. So mm-hmm. it was a big departure for me to mm-hmm. be out talking to people. And that was huge to talk to people from all different walks of life, all different ages. I talked to 100 year olds. I talked to 17 year olds, you know, like amazing experience of the diversity of our communities. Um, and then the big thing to me was just it gave me so much more hope politically. Um, I think our media storylines flatten things. They mm-hmm. just do. And the way we talk about people around politics, we really make it a polarized thing. And we act like there's only two ways to be. Not at all. Like when you go up and talk to people, like I talked to, you know, I knocked on 20,000 doors, probably talked to six to 7,000 people, right? Their values are all over the place. People have so many different experiences that make up who they are and why they've come to the political views that they have, some of which are real rigid, some of which are they're still learning. Um, People come at it from all different directions. And you cannot assume that just because someone likes a certain politician Mm -hmm. that they're that all these things align. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was beautiful to me to be like, you know, this 
community is so much more diverse than we know. And anytime we start acting like you can categorize people, we are dismissing so much about those people. Um, Because I talk to people all the time where they had this weird mix of experiences or their parents did certain things or they came from a certain community that affects how they see the world and how they experience it. People have had a disease that changed their life. They've, you know, wide variety of reasons why people have the political experiences, interests that they have. Anyway, that was amazing. So learning about people's values, talking to people about what, I mean, I love, I am kind of a know-it-all. Like I love to know a little bit about a million things. Well, that's a great thing when you're a candidate, apparently, yeah. because I've read the paper for decades and I let, listen to music and I like to know about sports and, you know, just getting to try to connect with people was really mm-hmm. wonderful because really people want to know more than anything, is this person going to listen to me? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, are they going to truly try to represent me and listen to me? And so I would feel that, you know, with them, whether they were connecting. Yeah. And- I was just going to say that skill set of listening as a foundation for then entering into politics. I, I don't know. It's not always expected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I thought I would be doing more telling people, Mm -hmm. but that's not my personality usually anyway. So it was interesting because I, when I got ready, I thought I needed to be like, okay, here's my main points. Here's public education and mental health. And you know, what are my main things that I'm for? People didn't want to get lectured. You know, Mm -hmm. they did not want to. And a lot of times people didn't even ask me my stance on things. Like I probably only was really grilled a dozen times out of 5,000, you know, 6,000, which is amazing to me. You'd think people would be like, well, where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on that? Where do you stand? No. Most of the time people really want to tell you what they're thinking. They want to know that you care. Mm -hmm. And by you listening and and doing that, I think is is a very, it's a very important thing. And something that's impressed me too, because- I met you at a Homeless for the Arts event once. Kelsey Carper was like, let me introduce you to, mm-hmm. to Julia. I was like, okay. And, and from that point on, you've always made a point to, if you see me, no matter what I'm doing, I'm usually, you know, in the middle of doing something. And you're just like, hey, Josh. When you came around, actually how we got Julia for the podcast is I had just laid down for a nap on Saturday. I'd been doing a bunch of work around the house. <laughs> sure. And I was like- It's okay ha- to nap. It's good. Napping in, is a good thing. I was half in, half out. And my wife answered the door and she didn't know Julia's face or, and, and Julia's talk. She's, oh yeah, I've you know, heard about you. Blah, blah. And she, she was campaigning, even though she didn't have anybody to campaign against, she was going out and making building relationships. And I was like, I hear this in my half sleep. I'm like, oh wait, me and Marissa just talked about having her on the <laughs> podcast. She gets halfway through my yard and I storm, she doesn't know it's my house. And I storm out the door and I go, Julia. And she looks, <laughs> looks around like, well, where's my mace? You that know? was great. No, like, uh, anything can happen when you're out. But then we had a conversation for about 10 minutes great. and- Oh my gosh. She's here. I love podcast. it. I'm so glad. Yeah. So I, I, um, every 10 years they redistrict because of the census. So you have to make sure that the districts have, you represent an equal number of people. So my district's been pretty dramatically redrawn. It's about 50% new. So I'm not knocking doors like I did last time, right. but I'm at least trying to get out in the new areas and start, start knocking and mm-hmm. I'll knock more this summer, even if I don't have an opponent. Cause I want to know who people are like that experience of doing it the first time has so affected how I view and it helps me push back against in the Capitol and online, there's pressure to do things. And mm-hmm. sometimes people try to act like there's only one option or mm-hmm. they're pressuring. And I, I can feel having talked to that many people, what's not that important to my district or what is, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I don't know everybody's opinion, but I can, I have a pretty good sample size. Yeah. You've yeah. got a finger on the pulse, they say. Yeah. And saying that too, just recently. I haven't had a chance to vote for you. So that's, you did all that and I wasn't even a constituent in 
your district. I was a constituent in the state, of course, but, you know, living in Norman and then being outside of your district, that impressed me that you did that. And I wasn't a pawn for you. I wasn't a, a piece to move or a relationship to get somewhere else. I was just some dude snapping photos, you know? <laughs> well, I, you know, I want more people to feel engaged with their, their elected officials. And I know not every elected official is as determined to be out meeting folks, but for me, that's the most satisfying, gratifying thing. If anyone, like it's actually, that's what's carried between my art life and my elected life is I still want people's voices to be encouraged and empowered. And like, if that means getting you information you need, if that means helping you know about a policy, if that means just commiserating with you because something is a really bad decision and I can't stop it, then sometimes that's what it is. But I, I think that's, that's the most meaningful thing I get to do. For sure. The one thing that we are most focused on is cultivating community through creativity. What does that look like to you? You know, I may be too knee deep in my world that I'm in now, but for me, curiosity is a lot of that. I will say that I'm not currently in a community like our institutional culture of our legislative process right now is not a curiosity centered process. Like I feel like we should be asking every question and wondering about everybody's stance on things. And that's not always where people are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, to me, that's a learning organization versus like that growth mindset versus fixed mindset stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, are you somebody who views the world as all done and we just need to do our play our part or do you view it as unfolding and we need to do our, you know, grow and learn as we go. Right. Personally, that's really important to me to be focused on growth and learning. And, you know, when I was on the doors talking to people, they would say, you're going to change when you get in office, like you're going to lose. And I was like, well, absolutely. I expect to change. I should change. If I haven't mm -hmm. changed, I'm not learning. I know the things that won't change about me, you know, right. integrity, you know, I'm there for good intent, et cetera. But so that mindset in my personal attitude is in my legislating and, and I would like more of us, like there's a, sometimes a fear about questions, a defensiveness about curiosity that I, that concerns me. And I think it bleeds out into the state in general, in terms of that fear of curiosity by our kids or in our communities and I don't know if that makes sense, but no, I think no. how you, how, I think we in the legislature create, can create culture with state agencies mm -hmm. and with our constituents. We set a tone together, right. you know? And I, th I think that's very clear. I haven't necessarily looked at from that angle when you're cultivating community or creating community. Curiosity has to play a part because to be a community and to care for somebody, you have to take care of their needs, their wants and, and take care of them. You can't find out, you, just, you can't just psychically know what those are. You have to ask them. You have to be curious to develop a relationship with someone. I have to be curious to find out more about Marissa or more about Julia. And that's, that's a, a great point that that yeah, does. Great step one. Well, if you think you already know everything or if you think you already have enough friends or you already know enough people or have heard from enough people, I don't know. That's the thing I have to work at. Could you speak to, you know, you had mentioned the questions and how there, you know, there's some concern about the videos that you have been making recently that really break down just basics where I think even myself included, I have concerns about questioning and better understanding the process. And you've started making these, you know, videos on social media that really enhance and break down yeah, I'm trying to focus on finance. So interestingly, so I used to run a little nonprofit organization. It was about a $500,000 budget, which seems huge to me from where it started when I was there. But um, now I'm working with budgets. Like we look at budgets that are billions, right? Mm -hmm. Billions of dollars. And But I'm like a finance nerd there 
And it's because in nonprofits, you have to look at every dollar and you have to justify everything and you ask hard questions and you're, you're answering grant requests. So you have to like tell people why all the time. And so that's translated into me being kind of the budget nerd in my caucus. And, and at first I just was like, well, I'm just, I just care. I want to learn about this because it's the biggest thing we do. I mean, we last year, $24.8 billion spent in our state on services and, and things that people need or that we think they need. And prioritizing that is the biggest thing that's in the legislative mandate. And so I just want to learn everything I can Mm because I'm like, that seems too important to me. So I've been on this learning process and I've kind of gotten to the point where I realized that not a lot of people are learning about this, partly because I think people are intimidated by finance. It's a bunch of numbers, a bunch of spreadsheets, and they're afraid maybe that they don't understand it. So they don't know what to ask. And then, or you might know one piece, like we have some legislators that are knee deep in the health um, related expenditures that we have or some other folks that are really into the whatever they are into insurance or something Mm -hmm. um so i just started thinking well i've been doing this for like three years if i can break things down maybe i can actually it helps me learn when i break things so i'm like i'm just (laughs) trying to break things down into one minute i just my goal is to do it for reels because reels have to be one minute right Right. and so i was like if i can make it a one minute explanation then i have broken it down enough because most people don't want to listen to five minutes about the budget right they barely want to listen to one minute about the budget gosh growing up math was my least favorite subject and actually when my dad would sit down to assist with homework with me i would actually call it the math voice because it was just like come on you can do it push through you know math voice math voice well, see, and I think, you know, I think some, like, I did not like math that much. I like geometry, like spaces and stuff. But, but what I've ended up in my career, I found that when I had the money to do stuff, it really made a difference. So when, early on at Oakland Visual Arts Coalition, I started figuring out like, well, if we have these wacky ideas and then we figure out how to pay for them, we can do them, right? So like momentum, we spent like $1,000 the first year and then it made like $8,000. And we were like, oh, so we can, if we have the money in hand, we can do stuff. So that got me motivated like I, to make our budget bigger so we could do the things we dreamed of. And then with my campaign, it was the same way. I just was like, I need the money to do what I'm supposed to do here. And so I think not being afraid to, to tackle it, even if you don't like the individual numbers, um, but there's a huge learning curve. I know, and no legislator can be an expert in everything. So that's why I'm like, really, I should focus more on like breaking things down. Cause I want people to be able to say, this is not our priority. Why is this our priority? You know, for instance, we can talk about our incarceration rate in the state. We're pouring money into incarcerating people. We know how ineffective it's been, and we are unwilling to change, right? We're unwilling to focus on the prevention, and there's a huge cost to that, right? Things like that, I think it's hard for people to really query on if you don't get the money at all, you know? Or even talking about education money, because like any statistics, things can get cast or framed in a certain way, right? So maybe I'm, I'm not being creative with money because you're not allowed to be creative with money, right? <laughs> right. Just curious. Just yeah, curious. Just Although curious. I love visualizations and they kind of make fun of me because I'm always like, are there some graphs for this or some like visualization of this so I can explain it to somebody, you oh, know? Yeah. I'm a huge visual learner. So yeah, it's a must have. Could you name a couple of artists that inspire you and why? Okay. I have to say Romy Owens. I know that Romy was Ooh. on your show, but- Actually, when I was describing my life at OVAC and how it changed over time in terms of my view of individual artists to my life now, her project where she got people to knit squares that then she seamed together into the unbearable absence of landscapes, absence of landscapes. Thank you. That project I still think about as such a tangible example of 
each knot is its own knot. Each square that people made was its own square, but she found a way to bring it together and cover a darn building in fabric. Yeah, yeah. I love it. And I have her mock-up drawing on my wall at my, cool. at my office. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's what she got on my radar for. And that we talked about that last week, but it was like, I, I looked at what they were doing physically and I was like, wow, that's really tough. And then I thought, started thinking about the logistics, the people relationships, all the moving parts. And Romy's just kind of like, you know, they're all her marionette. She's good She's at definitely bringing it all together. She, she definitely is. Well, and like just, it was also gorgeous. Like from the inside of the building, you had the light going out from the outside. It was like this big landscape thing. And then it's all based around these little knots, which to me is really inspiring as far as like there's one step at a time. Just take one right. step at a time, you know. Right. Each one of those knots could be a person. Each one of those knots could be an entity. You know, it takes a group to, to get anything done. It's very beautiful. So that's number one. Okay. I got to mm-hmm. say Soto just because I, Jesus Soto, because I spent so much time researching him yeah. and I love that he ended up on community, that that's where he ended up. That's what he wanted was his legacy was to build community and build connections between people. I mean, what a great thing for his art. And he gave his personal collection to this museum and it's kind of a small town in Venezuela. You so know? have you ever been able to like get a, a print or a original or anything from this? You know, that's interesting you'd say that because that doesn't appeal to me at all. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't want to collect it. You don't have to. Yeah. Of course, I love that. So his penetrables are the interactive ones, pen- the, bit, the penetrable. And I couldn't own one of those because they're gargantuan public <laughs> art pieces. But no, that's, that's our interesting. Room, you know? <laughs> yeah. You I to- want to go see more of them. Yeah. Like we went to, my husband and I went to Caracas and to Ciudad Boulevard to go experience a bunch of them because they don't travel much. And that, that was fun. That's very oh, cool. Oh gosh, now a third. Why can't third I come artists? up with a third? You don't have to have three. It's going to come to me in a minute. Yeah, I'm feeling like two, two favorite artists. Marissa Ragland. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> we are seated here if you need inspiration. <laughs> well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I mean, I encourage people just figure out who represents you if you don't already know. And you can try to connect with them. I mean, they may not all be, you know, people with the arts background like me, um, but I'm glad to help people. Because I hear people complaining about things they don't like. And I just want people to understand that those decisions are made every day. Like literally at the state and local level, decisions are made every day that impact what, where money's being spent, what's being supported, what policies are happening in our communities. And it, and it really is something people can engage and make change on. We'd like to thank Senator Kurt for sharing her time with us. You can follow along with her at her Instagram or on Twitter at Julia Kurt. This information and other links mentioned in this podcast is in our show notes for this episode at our website, www.rallyokc.com. And of course, we want to thank our audience for listening. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast if you enjoyed it. You can follow us on Instagram at rally.up.okc. We'll be joining you here again soon. Cheers! I tell people all the time, I can't wait till, till I'm a re, you know, respected elder age because <laughs> then all the stuff I say is no longer mean. But right. You can be rude and they just, just think just like, you're, oh, that's so funny. Uh, it's you're so like, quaint. oh, she's been worn down he on that. For, that way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's been mad about that for 30 He's just years. Just a crotchety old man. Crotchety. Since 10. <laughs> <laughs>